everybody. Uh, you are listening to The Atlas. I'm Jakai Mickelson, creative director of Atlanta Movie Tours. Uh, and at this point, you may notice an alarming lack of Emma. As many of you already likely know, especially those of you who follow out there in social networking land, Emma is in Scotland. And while the trip has been amazing... She's been a bit uh, internetly challenged. In addition to uh, actually handling the challenge of driving a car that had the steering wheel on what most of us would consider the passenger side, with the glaring exception of mail delivery people. So they they already know what it feels like. But uh, not to worry, Emma will be back with us with her soothing voice and all-around insiderness uh, next week. But in the meanwhile, you're in for a treat because I am joined today by Omar Beach, uh, who's actually the main subject of the yet-to-be-released film called Spilled Milk, which is the small documentary project that brought me out to Atlanta in the first place. And also, uh, we're in his home. Well, I'm not in the closet. We are not in the closet together right now, just in a regular room. I'm totally out of the closet. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and, and, and the place where you guys know, if, if, if you're listening, that uh, me and my pregnant wife have been staying with Omar and his family while we're uh, waiting for our small house to get renovated. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, say hello to Omar Beach. Hello to Omar Beach. So here we are. Uh, just so, so today we're going to talk, uh, actually we have an, an interview, uh, the first real-time interview we've ever done in the history of the podcast. That's right, doing that without Emma here. Um, with, a, with somebody I consider Atlanta insider, a gentleman by the name of Curtis Jenkins. He works for the state of Georgia, uh, is from Atlanta, and I think has some great insight on the city and also what, what the impact that filming has had here. Also, we're going to review a Stephen King's Cell, uh, which is a Georgia filmed movie that kind of snuck out to release. And also we're going to talk uh, domestic box office. Yeah. We'll do that too. <laughs> no. Well, we'll talk about the cell. Talk about sickle cell and spill milk. Uh, and then I will act like I know what I'm doing. It'll be great. <laughs> it's perfect. Well, See, it's always good to just, uh, go upstairs and find a co-host. Uh, that's, that's one of the advantages of the Atlas. You never know what you're going to get. Um, but uh, as I referenced, uh, and, and Emma and I have talked about it a few times as well, we worked on a small film called Spilled Milk, which is all about Omar's experience uh, with Sickle Cell. Um, and if you guys want to learn more about that film, we're still, we're still looking uh, to get into film festivals and such, but you can check out a preview at SpilledMilkMovie.com. Uh, introduce you to me and to Omar in a different way than, than probably what you're used to, especially me, after listening to me on this, on this fun podcast. Hmm. Uh, but is there anything ab- about that, Omar, you'd like to talk about? Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's about uh, blood cells and treatment and a really good friends sit- who happens to be sitting across from me right now, um, who I don't think gets a lot enough credit when we're out in public for the movie, but uh, no, it's a, it's pretty personal, and I, I don't know. I, I I think it's will be an overall good without trying to sound too, like, I don't know, self-serving, I guess, you know? But I, I just... I like it. I like the idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, two things. Number one, Omar is on camera way more than I am in the film. So whenever we go someplace, he's the one that's recognized. And rightly so. He's the one that's actually going through it. I'm just the guy that held up a camera while he was going through it, which is not something a good friend said. Oh, so you're in a lot of pain? It's a horrible day? I'm just going to film it. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, look, 
A lot of people have seen you in pain and done absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> well, it's kind of point of movie. <laughs> So there you go, guys. We, we won't talk about it too much, but uh, if, if you're curious, check out uh, SpilledMountMovie.com. Um, let me know if you have any questions or comments about it. So we ended up working on the film together, and and interestingly enough, when I, we first started on the film, I thought I'd come out to visit Atlanta for a couple months. Uh, and I think I actually talked about this before in one of the episodes, but that did not end up happening. I thought I'd come out here, get everything captured in two months, head back to L.A., finish it up, and get it done. And it took over three years to get the film done. And it, we, We've only been finished with the film for the last, like, f- I'd say four months completely, um, submitting into festivals. Um, but that's actually what brought me out to Atlanta, which has brought me to uh, Omar's neck of the woods. Yeah, so uh, basically, I have this movie to blame for you gentrifying my basement. Because you came from all the way across the country, and then you landed in my city, and now you're downstairs from my bedroom, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Well, it is, a, and and also uh, my wife is very pregnant, so we're actually expecting I have nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah, nothing to do with that, and we're expecting the kiddo to be here mid-July, who we will also likely be bringing home to Omar's family's. Basement and and by the way, calling it a basement is a bit of a disservice because it is actually a wonderful place that has windows and a door to a beautiful little lake outside. Anyways, uh, the reason why pond out your window is beautiful. Yeah, we got a koi pond. I mean, we are really living the dream, Um, but we are here yet. We are gentrifying Omar's basement because we're about to bring yet another white person into this basement. If I find like a Gap store down here or something like that, uh, I'm gonna lose my shit. So, while I've lived in Atlanta for just over three years now, Omar's lived here for, geez, Close to ten, man. Close to ten. So, he's been here for a while, uh, but, but nothing matches, that I know personally, matches this man, Curtis, who's from Atlanta and has lived here the whole time. So, why don't we check in with Curtis? You're a lifetime Atlantean. Yes, I am. So, and actually, what, as a lifetime Atlantean, what the hell are you supposed to call a lifetime Atlantean? Uh... I think I'm the only one, so just Curtis is fine. Curtis, I was going to say. <laughs> Curtis is you're you're here by yourself. Yes. Um, well, thanks uh, thanks for joining us. You're actually um, our first kind of live guest ever on the Atlas. I'm just curious to to know how that makes you feel. Uh, you know, special, a little warm and fuzzy. Uh, it's going on my LinkedIn profile, so you know, I hope this goes really well. Yeah, this is uh, this is the interview that's going to make you and us actually everyone involved. You're a pretty pretty pony. Yes, yes. Well, so obviously, Curtis, uh, you're very passionate about your about your hometown, um, and you're from here. So how how has the town changed? Just just kind of from your perspective, uh, it's gotten a lot bigger and a lot smaller simultaneously. Uh, there's a lot more density, so a lot of people in a small area, but more so socially. So you have. Uh, a lot of people who you know, and you still have that Atlanta three degrees of separation, but there's a lot more people that have that three degree of separation. And that's kind of been interesting because there's been an influx of people, but that component hasn't changed. No, that, that is interesting. Um, it, it, do you feel like, has the influx of people been kind of a steady stream or is it just as it exploded as of a certain time? Uh, there's been a couple of different explosions. I think the first one happened ironically enough when it was revealed that Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown bought a house in Atlanta <laughs> and then you had this one influx 
And that was right around right. the Olympics, maybe a little bit before. So you had that sort of happen. Then people who came in for the Olympics kind of went, oh, wow, this city exists. And I don't know what the cause and effect were or what that kind of tipping point was where Atlanta went from being, there's a town we know that exists there. We all change planes to everyone getting off the plane and going, oh, it's a pretty nice town. I'll move there, live there, bring my business to that city. So I don't know what that tipping point, whether it was the Olympics or something else about the city that kind of made people take notice. So, like, has the uh, attitude and personality changed much? It has, and I'm not sure if it's, 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 it's finished. But you have so many transplants here, and you have so many people who are, you know, who are from here who move further away or move out of town that I think Atlanta's personality is changing, but there's still some tension between old Atlanta and new Atlanta, as in what Atlanta is mm-hmm. supposed to be. Are we a New York, LA, Chicago type of town? Are we a smaller city? And I think that's something that Atlanta and even American culture at large is trying to figure out is what exactly is Atlanta? Where does it fall as a metropolis in the United States and in the world? And so you kind of have this interesting tension between places and people that kind of that come springs out of that i i almost feel like i've i've experienced that firsthand you know as you know i moved out here from southern california after living in san diego for years and then living in los angeles i always felt and i've said this that i think atlanta weirdly is way more los angeles than it is san diego just just in terms of, of, of all the different kinds of culture you can find here. And, like, basically, I feel like in Atlanta, if you're interested in something, you can find another pocket of people that are interested in that same thing. And I don't necessarily know if I would say that. I mean, obviously, that's true of any city, but I don't know if I'd say that the top-level view of San Diego. Well, I mean, that that's, that's true. But you, I think the thing is, take those pockets. You can find almost anything in every any given city. It's just a matter of right. the ability to go out and go beyond your five or six spots. It's when it's, I want to go karaoke or I want to go to a bar that has this or that feature. How many options do you have for your niche? And I think that's right. That's the thing. I think Atlanta is in this transition from having, okay, if you want to do this, you have to go to Beaufort Highway. You have to go downtown, midtown to, there's a bar in your neighborhood that fits what it is that you're looking for. Yeah, I think I think that's right on. And I and I feel like I've experienced I've, I've been here since uh, 2013, basically the beginning of the year. And, and I can feel that change just since I've been here, like with the influx of new businesses and the influx of of, of the neighborhoods and such that are changing. I mean, and, and as you is kind of being like, frankly, the grand marshal of this town, it, it, uh, being from here and growing up here and everything. How, how do you personally feel about the change? I love it because it's no longer, okay, I want to go out. I have to go to Buckhead or I have to go to Midtown. Now it's, I can walk out my back door. It's a, uh, if I want to play kickball, if I want to do something social, I no longer have to drive 20 minutes to do it. It's now I can walk, I can have a bike ride, I can have a three-minute car ride to go do that thing instead of it having to be, okay, I want to do X, I have to drive Y distance to do this. Well, what is your favorite thing about Atlanta? Uh, My favorite thing about Atlanta, I have to say, is the actual spirit of Atlanta, not what it is now, but 
people who've been here a while, people who grew up here, when you meet each other, it's kind of a a warmth, I want to say. I mean, it's a very laid-back city, which I think helps it a lot. I mean, it's not as on the go as a New York or Chicago. It's a little more personable than in L.A. or Seattle or San Francisco. And it, I mean, yeah. it's just trade-offs. And in, in res- but you get that sort of southern southernness, but with enough yeah. of other things kind of mixed in and influenced too. Yeah, when I I was just I was just up north in New Jersey and I was talking to someone and like we were talking about Atlanta and you know we were discussing how southern hospitality is a real thing and it's appreciated because up north, you know, they just they can be quite rude, you know, as proud as I am of my roots. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because there are people who now think Atlanta is too much of that. So you see Nashville, uh, Birmingham, Charleston, Savannah sort of becoming the more genteel South in some ways. Hmm. <clears throat> and that's not a bad thing. I mean, I think every region should have multiple cities that can support that. Uh, Charlotte is kind of its own thing. But as far as just Atlanta itself and the Southern culture, I like that we still have that it's more of a, extension of a home life is taken into the public sphere. I mean, it, yeah, that, right. that makes any sense. No, I, I think, I think it does. And also I think there's kind of like a, and I've actually talked about this before. There's just a, there's, there's an expectation to say hello to people you're right. walking by on the sidewalk and, and not even one that I, it's weird. Cause I do not love small talk. In fact, that's one of my least favorite things. But I find for the most part, when I get involved in a conversation here, even if it starts that way, I end up enjoying it. And I never think twice about saying hello to somebody on the street. And after I'd lived here for a while and and I uh, was back in Los Angeles for a stretch, actually staying in our former neighborhood. So it felt it was like a weird time travel. I, I said hello to a, a woman who was walking her dog and she seriously looked at me with just and, and the feeling was just so cold and like, how dare you? And I felt like, what the hell? Oh, yeah, right. I'm not in Atlanta right now. So yeah. there is there is a difference. Yeah. Happened to me up north. I mean, like we were in a funeral procession and nobody respected that that, that car line. Yeah, nobody did. We almost got hit by like a telephone truck <laughs> because <laughs> I don't care about you. Yeah, it's like yeah, I've got no, something else yeah. to do. Whereas I think here there is a tacit acknowledgement of you as a person, even for that split second on the street of hello, a head nod just the tip of your head, just something that says, okay, I see you, you exist. And I think there's so much conversation that happens in that 10th to half a second of acknowledgement that I think that separates the South from the rest of the nation. And then Atlanta from a lot of other places, because it's still a large yeah. city. It's, I mean, we're at what, five and a half, six million people. And yet that still happens. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's true. It's, it's true. Great. Yeah. yeah, it's built into me too. Like I picked it up. I, yeah, I I would never say hello to anybody growing up in Southern California, and now it's built into me also. So it's uh, it's infected me. Um, well, circling around since we are after all an entertainment blog, and uh, but although I feel like right now we're ready to uh, get sponsorship from Explore Georgia, <laughs> um, you specifically you know ha- ha- work with a lot of infrastructure in the city. How has the influx of all the filming and stuff kind of affected your world? It's funny because, I mean, it used to be 
when I was a kid, I always wondered why there were no TV shows set in Atlanta. A WKRP in Cincinnati was actually based on a radio station in Atlanta. But they were like, uh, Atlanta won't sell. So they didn't do it. They just changed the city. Then you had Matt Locken in the heat of the night. And we're kind of like, okay, that's <laughs> our moment. That's our time to shine. But it was still never <laughs> the primetime sitcom or drama. Then you had a few here and there. Now with so things filming here, you see this total change in the city and how things act and how things... I mean, when you have one or two shows filming here, no one really cares. I mean, you see Andy right. Griffith, people don't know who he is. Now you see it and it's all the Marvel movies. It's, uh, I remember when they filmed uh, Zombieland. And I was down in South Georgia and my office had to be involved in that because it was some of the things they were doing. So you start seeing on the from a civic pride and it's like, yeah, you're filming here from a sort of work perspective. You start seeing permits, you start seeing requests come across your desk that you didn't see before. And it's definitely been on an uptick. And they're building studios. They're filming things that need different uh, considerations. They're constantly asking, what can we do? Where can we film? I got a call one day from a location scout who said, hey, you've been in a lot of buildings. Do you know of any buildings that look like this, have this feature? And because of my job, I was able to go, yeah, here's five buildings off the top of my head. So it's definitely a cool thing to see on those levels. And then yeah. when you sit in the movie theater and everyone stays till the end of every superhero movie, when they see that film <laughs> in Georgia Peach go by last, it's kind of a kind of a cool thing. What is some of the downside of it? Is there like a downside that you've experienced based on the influx? The only downside is, I mean, it's going to sound cliche, but the traffic. I mean, there have been times you're trying to go somewhere and there's filming that blocks an intersection. Or there was, uh, I think, the movie Baby Driver was filming on uh, Freedom Parkway right where it enters onto 7585. And yeah. there's no sign anywhere that tells you that. So you end up stuck for an hour and a half waiting to make a left or a right when you want to go straight. And then, I mean, so you're awake. There's no other way to get off of it. So you're, you're there. Uh, so that's kind of what, that's the only real downside I've seen. There has been no other real incidents that I've seen that would indicate a quote-unquote downside. Yeah, I, uh, having lived in Castleberry Hill for so long, we definitely uh, carry uh my colleague at Atlanta Movie Tours, she's the president of the Castleberry Hill Neighborhood Association, and she's definitely listened to a lot of people complaining because it does it does mess with traffic. And obviously, that's already kind of a fragile subject here in Atlanta, obviously. Yes, um, but I, I always thought, and, and you know, maybe it's an ignorant perspective, but I always thought, I mean, like for the long-term good of the neighborhood, it's probably a pretty good sacrifice to make. But I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a slippery slope, especially when oftentimes the, the, the neighborhood's being closed down to look like a post-apocalyptic right. world. I you mean, know. And then you kind of get into the other whole socioeconomic thing of, you know what, if Atlantans had a proper subway system or public transit that could get us around, then maybe it's not as big of a deal. But I mean, that's a whole other thing. And Usually, I mean, right. my office, we get notices at least twice a month that says, hey, this is going to be filming on this day and time. Be aware. And you can negotiate it mostly. It's when it's on the weekend yeah. in a highly congested part of town or like Castleberry where there's really only what, a couple ways in or out. Yeah. That that becomes an issue. 
Well, uh, what's uh, what's your favorite Atlanta filmed film? Ah, uh, put you on the spot. This one is sound completely stupid. It's one of two movies. Is it RoboCop three. It's either is it RoboCop three? Uh, oh. Civil War or uh, Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> That is, that is a spectacular range. No ATL? No, not really. I mean, the thing I love about Smoking the Bandit is, A, the hilarity of trying to get Coors Light from Texarkana to Savannah. The, the characters are so insanely stupid and crazy in it, but it's a fun movie to watch. And the fact that Burt Reynolds was 40 years ahead of his time. Because he tried to turn Atlanta into this in the 70s, and everyone kind of went, yeah. nope, not going to happen, Bert. Too small of a town. And here we are 40 <laughs> years later, and I hope that he's somewhere going, I told every single one of you. I told you. Yeah, well, he brought a lot here, because Shark is Machine, Deliverance. Like, yeah. that, that guy put in some work, yeah. Um, well, last but not least, uh, not only do you know all this stuff about the city, but you're also kind of passionately involved in another project, uh, which has the best name of any project ever. And I'm, of course, talking about Footy Mob. Yes. Can you can you talk a little bit about Footy Mob? Why the heck is that a thing? So, short story long, uh, I love Atlanta sports. I always have. I always will. Uh, I'm that guy who had who go to went to Hawks games and they were bad. I remember when we signed Lafonso Ellis and we were happy about it. I remember being <laughs> on Delphi forums going, "We got Lafonso Ellis. I can't believe he came here." So that's how bad sports history in Atlanta is and how much I care. And with us getting the new soccer team, uh, Atlanta United in town, it's been kind of a fun ride because I love the amount of passion that you're allowed to have in soccer. And yeah. players celebrate and it's expected. The only You get a, a yellow card if you take your shirt off. I mean, imagine if that was the only penalty in football. Right now, if you even celebrate the tiniest bit in the NFL, it's a 15-yard penalty, which can hurt your 15. team. Right. There's a deeper connection to the fans and the community in the sport, and it's a smaller team. It's, I mean, you're looking at 18 to 22 players. Uh, you get to know them, and it, it's much more ingrained in the community, it feels. But honestly, it's just such a fun sport. I mean, it's easy to love. I didn't become a soccer fan until the... I want to say 2006 World Cup in Germany. And that's when a lot of people I'm friends with became fans because you were, this thing happened in Germany. And I had worked with a guy who took a whole month off to go do it. I was like, what is this about? And I watched it and I was hooked. I mean, there are no commercials, 15 minute halftime. In two hours, you've watched a complete game. There's the chanting, there's the cheering. The celebratory nature of the sport in and of itself is so strong that's what hooked me on the sport and then I saw Atlanta as this kind of opportunity because so much of the soccer community because of where it's based and how it's grown organically is so much based in the sort of English specifically and European in general sort of mindset of fandom a lot of the chants are just the same ones they use in England but just switched up a little bit and I thought okay Atlanta's greatest exports are Coke, Delta, and hip-hop. Why not try to bridge that gap a little bit? Why not use uh, some Atlanta hip-hop-based songs for the chant, which we've been working on. We have two that we put online that people can listen to. We have sort of, we're trying to bring that sort of influence into it. That said, 
um, I'll be 37 when the team starts playing. So a fold standing for 90 minutes uh, supporters group was not in the cards for me. My knees would explode. <laughs> so I just tr- tried to find a middle ground where it's like, hey, we're passionate supporters. We're there for the team. We'll be there every game. We're going to watch and travel to the team whenever we can. We're going to have a bar here that we all go to to watch together. But we're going to dial it back just a hair. I mean, so you can actually watch the game. You can cheer in the flow of the game. So that's awesome that you're bringing the passion. How have people been responding to the idea of Footy Mob? Uh, it's interesting. People who get the name and understand, okay, it's a playoff of Goody Mob, a local hip-hop group. That's where CeeLo came from. Those people immediately get the joke and they're in on it. Some people don't get it and have to be kind of a little, a little education has to be done. Uh, but other than that, people have been hugely responsive. Uh, I think we get a lot of feed, good feedback from people because it's a fun game. We should have fun with it. And I think with any subset of Twitter, whether it's basketball Twitter, soccer Twitter, baseball Twitter, has this tendency, well, the internet in general, is just like an echo chamber. So you have to have people there who are just going, you know what? I'm going to just chill out here and have fun. I'm going to make weird pop culture references to what's happening on the field. And I think people respond to that because at the end of the day, it is just a game and it, it's okay to be passionate about it, but then you always have to also have a little fun with it. Uh, that's, that's awesome. And that's, that's keeping your eye on the ball, but not your hands. Cause you can't yeah. touch unless you're yeah. goalie. That's yeah. That's a penalty. That's yeah. Uh, well, so where can people find footy mob? Uh, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash footymob, on Facebook at facebook.com slash footymob, or footymob.club, which is our website. Nice. And what we're doing the first year, uh, up into, it's going to go through this winter, is it's absolutely free to join. Uh, we just want to get people out, say, hey, are we people that you want to watch a game with? And so we just want to get together with good people and you know, have fun watching a game. Nice. Can you tell me how uh, Cujo Goody feels about all of this? Uh, I wish I could give you an answer to that. <laughs> if you find him, let him. I have a shirt for him. I have a scarf for him. And honestly, I would do everything I can to get that man on this show. <laughs> and honestly, anywhere in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, Curtis, man, uh, thank you very much again for taking the time to talk with us on the Atlas. Uh, and, and thanks for being a friend of the show. Um, and honestly, man, I, I look forward to checking in with you again to see how this all goes once uh, once this thing called soccer actually starts playing out here in Atlanta. All right. Thanks for having me on. So, all right. Well, now that you guys uh, know everything you need to ever know about soccer uh, and everything that you need to know about Atlanta, let's go ahead and do domestic box office. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, yeah. yeah. I like your enthusiasm. So uh, the number one film... Uh, in North America, still, for the second week in a row, could, uh, do you know what movie this might be? I'm guessing it's Finding Dory. It is indeed Finding Dory. Well done. Uh, it's number one with a weekend take of $73 million, which makes its gross to this point $286.3 million domestically in two weeks. Uh, the original 2003 film, by the way, made $867 million worldwide, and that's not inflation or anything. That's just what it made, uh, which, which actually made... Finding Nemo, the second highest grossing film of that year. Oh, wow. And that's the year 2003. Can you think of what the number one grossing film was of that year? 2003? Yes, sir. I have no idea. I can't even think. It is a little film called Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Oh. 
That wow. movie is still ending, if you're watching it. <laughs> it's still ending. That's right. Uh, coming in second, a little film called Independence Day Resurgence. That's made $41 million domestically in its first week of release. Uh, so it's actually not doing too shabby. What's the word on the street on that one? Uh, it's, it's, uh, Emma was concerned because it did not release screeners before it was released, which oftentimes it's a bad is sign. a bad sign. Right. Um, it's averaging, oh yeah, its Metascore is 33 out of 100, and it's got a 5.7 user rating, which, uh, yeah, that's not very good. Well, it's hard to recover a sequel when your big guy just isn't there anymore. I mean, Will Smith was Independence Day, even though it was an ensemble cast, you know, like, to not have him back is, you know, and then it sort of jumped out of nowhere, like, wait, Independence Day has a sequel this year? So, yeah, I understand. Yeah, and it's also been uh, a crowded year of sequels, which yeah. which seems like it's happening more and more. Uh, and speaking of sequels, even though it's not a sequel, uh, third place is a film called Central Intelligence with Kevin Hart and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He's actually just Dwayne Johnson now. He's officially not The yeah, Rock not at all Rock anymore. anymore. Uh, but that's uh, now made $69.2 million in, in its second week of its run. That's one that interests me. I like Kevin Hart, but I... I don't think he's had the right movie, and seeing that one, seeing the the ads for that one, it has made me feel like there's his vehicle. I just feel like he's tried on every possible vehicle. Well, it's gotten to the point where it's like, oh, look, Kevin Hart in a buddy movie. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. It's like, here's a white one. Here's a black one. Here's a middle-of-the-road one. It kind of seems like he's trying to run the whole market. Right. Well, but it's like, you know, I, I personally didn't like Ride Along. I wasn't. It yeah. was. It wasn't horrible, but I didn't really love it as much as the, the populace did. Yeah. So I saw this one. I was like, "That looks like it might be the one where I I, I give it, him a thumbs up." I actually really like Kevin Hart, but I do. from from like I find myself being like, "Okay, you're starting to kind of like." He's almost like that guy, the really funny guy that comes to your party, mm-hmm. but is still there. Yeah, <laughs> and the party kind of ended a while ago, but he keeps right. coming back. And you always want to invite him again, but it's like, oh man! But this time he's gonna. I saw, I saw the one with uh, Will Ferrell, and yeah, I could, I haven't even watched that. Yeah, I feel like even the even the even the trailer made me uncomfortably racist. Although Ti kind of showed up in that movie. Oh really? So, yeah, I mean, Ti is actually kind of he's kind of an interesting. Uh, Person when he shows up in little comedy comedy flicks like a uh, identity theft and all those kind oh, of yeah. thing. I know, when he shows up, he's like, "Oh, look at that Ti, make the Atlanta proud." In uh, fourth place is a movie called The Shallows. It's a movie basically about a surfer versus a shark. It's actually a smaller film though. It only had a budget of seventeen million, and it's looking like it's going to make its money back because it's already at, I think, seventeen million is what it's made. So, uh, actually, quick aside, what is your favorite shark movie that's not Jaws? My favorite shark movie that's not Jaws. Um, what's the one where they ate uh, Samuel L. Jackson? Let's go with that one. <laughs> I knew you were going to say it. I knew you were going to say it. What, what, what is the name of that movie? Uh, uh, deep, blue, deep, deep Blue Sea. Deep Blue Sea, yeah. Deep Blue Sea. Yeah, I, I somehow, I'm like, Omar's totally going to say it. That's what he's going to say. I'm going to go with the Open Water which is that with, very, uh, very small independent film, and they were left out in the middle going scuba diving. Who's it? Is it like a Betty White's in that? Open Water? No. Well, Nobody's in it that you heard of. It was like, it's about... I know what you're talking oh. about. They, 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 you know, like the person was in the lake and the thing came, right? 
No. Like, like they were in the boat, and then... Ah, never mind. Let's move on. This I haven't is, seen it, but I, I believe I remember the... Uh, uh, Open Water is a, is a good film, especially right. how it was but made. Maybe also confusing it with one of those other water movies. <laughs> Waterworld. You're getting it confused with Waterworld. That's my favorite. And uh, uh, Shark Flow. <laughs> and rounding out in fifth place, uh, now with a gross of $86.9 million in its third week of release, is The Conjuring Part 2, uh, which Emma gave, by the way. She reviewed it. She gave it an, an adult. An adult, uh, which is a, it's a three and a half. She gave it a three and a half stars, uh, and she said for that kind of movie, it's fantastic. Um, that's also done really well because that had an estimated budget of forty million. So it it's a, better than the first one. So the first one had a budget of twenty million bucks and ended up making one hundred and thirty-seven point four million dollars, and that's back in two thousand thirteen. So yeah, I mean this one's not doing too shabby at uh, eighty-seven million, right? That's what it's at. Yeah, so eighty-seven million bucks, and still it had a budget of forty million. So it's, it's, it's yeah, it's rolling. It's already done its job. So that's a horror film. Yeah. Uh, so Omar, I know you're not the biggest lover of horror films, so I'm going to put you on the spot yet again. What is your favorite horror film? My favorite horror film. Uh, my I'm guessing something in the Freddy genre, like like maybe the third one. Dream Warriors. Dream, is it Dream Warriors? Yeah, because the fourth one was... Was there a kid in it? You know, it's been a while since... In the fourth one. But I think it's the third one. The I'm third one is when, that, when all the, the kids in the like asylum yeah, get together yeah, and fight yeah. Freddy. And, and, uh, and they, 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 she, they, he grabs her and crushes her into the TV. Like, pulls her into the oh, I can't remember if that's the third or the fourth one. I think it was the third one he was playing with power. Uh, we need, we should have like a Freddy Krueger oh, night. You're playing with power. I think uh, Frank Darabont was involved. I remember with uh, part three, the Dream Warriors, mm-hmm. who also worked on a little show called The Walking Dead, Dead, which was filmed where uh, Georgia, Atlanta, all over the city here. Uh, which brings us to our review of Cell. Not to be confused with Jennifer Lopez's 2000, The Cell. Right. This is just Cell, which is based on a Stephen King novel, which just recently released, that was also filmed here in Georgia, which Frank Darabont had nothing to do with. Yeah. So we're, uh, let's, we're going to do, this is going to be another first, we're going to do an Atlas Media Review of The Cell with our guest co-host, Omar Beach. So let me give you a quick, uh, quick rundown of Cell. Uh, apparently, this thing was quietly released on June 10th, 2016. And just to give you a little context, I read this book, uh, Stephen King book called Cell, back in 2006, very shortly after it came out, and I fell in love with it. In fact, while I was reading the book, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this would be a spectacular movie. So I've kind of watched for it from afar for a really long time, and then when they were filming it here, I knew that Samuel Jackson was in it and John Cusack was in it. And I was like, oh, you know what? That's pretty good casting. That's pretty cool. Um, and then the other night, I was on the computer and I saw it on Amazon Prime for a rental. And I was like, wait. It came out, so apparently it was released quietly on June 10th. Interesting. Straight to straight to streaming? Or well, straight to On Demand. I don't even know if it's got a theatrical release, but I didn't hesitate at all. I, I freaking jumped on it. So he, here's the official synopsis of it, just so you guys have some context. Uh, it's based on Stephen King's best-selling novel of the same name. Cell follows a desperate New England father as he searches for his son following the broadcast of a mysterious signal that transforms people into rampaging maniacs. Uh, 1408 co-stars, which was a pretty good movie. I, I kind of like 1408. John Cusack and Samuel Jackson reunite for 
for this King adaptation, penned by the author and screenwriter Adam Aleka. Uh, Aleka, also an anagram for Cell AA. That is fascinating. <laughs> and that is insight we would not have, even with Emma here. So, well done. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm a that long... kind of nerd. <laughs> He's that kind of nerd. I'm a longtime Stephen King fan, so I was even stoked to find out that he actually played with screenplay. Although, he also penned a little film called Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> that was a long time ago, so I don't hold that against him. But he's a brilliant writer of books, but uh, maybe a little rough around the edges in his screenplay. What's that? Did you make a fam- his famous cameo? He hasn't done that for a long time, actually. But yeah, he was not in this film. No. No. All right. So with that, let's do the official Atlas Media Review for Stephen King's Cell with John Cusack. And Samuel L. Jackson. And Samuel Jackson. Who just won a Lifetime Achievement Award on BET, by the way. Yeah. He is sick of these mother-effing snakes on this mother-effing plane. All right, so let me let me ask you. So, uh, from one to five, how bored were you? I was not bored. I would actually give this a three from a boredom factor. Mm-hmm. But you have to take that with a grain of salt because I also read the book. Mm-hmm. In fact, I read the book twice. Really? Yeah, So, but it's been a long time since I've read the book. But I think the book was filling in a lot of the context for me. Give me one to five, your uh, book to movie, you know, how does it stand up? Ooh, first of all, you said, how does it stand up? The Stand, one of my favorite Stephen King books of all time. Um, ah, really, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't. It one, of the, one of the things, here's what's interesting. When I was watching the film, there were certain moments where I felt like, wow, that, that, that moment out on an island was a really powerful moment. Mm-hmm. But in the context of the entire film... It was it was really uneven. It, it, you know, it wasn't even uneven in terms of tone. It was just uneven and was like, that should have been way more powerful, but I didn't care enough about that character mm-hmm. for it to be powerful. Right, so, And in the, obviously in the context of the book, you have way more context. Right, right, right. You know, a lot of things you can't include. Uh, so we're going to eye roll engage. Uh, one to five. You know, interesting, I wouldn't give this a high eye-rolling gauge. I'd give it like a two from an eye-rolling perspective. I wasn't rolling my eyes over like, God, that was so corny. It was more of a less eye-rolling and more squint. Like, wait a minute, what's Uh, happening now? So I I was never quite like rolling my eyes with like, oh, that's over-the-stop cheesy. Right. But there were a few times where I was squinting like, wait, it seems like we got here pretty fast. And that... The context, well, right. you get the gist. It, it just, gotcha. it, it felt like it jumped around a little bit. Right, so let's go to performances. Who who showed up the best? Do you know what? I don't think there was a bad performance in this film. Really? Samuel Jackson and John Cusack, I thought were both pretty good. Both of them played a pretty kind of straight-laced character. There wasn't like a lot of like super strong emotional like range, but I felt like they both played understated people dealing with the pretty intense situation well. Okay, so so you think the roles were good? You know, the actors brought it. Where did it fail? Because it's obvious that you you don't love this movie. Well, that's the ch- I wanted to love this movie because right. I was excited for it for a long time, and it failed. I think. I don't know. It's like it's like it skipped too many steps, and also I, like reading the book. The book happened before The Walking Dead was a thing. Mm-hmm. The book even happened before iPhone was released. The iPhone was released in two thousand seven. The book was released in two thousand six. Oh. So so like in the book, people got it by talking on the phone. 
you know? Right. And like, it, it, so even in the context that this film is finally released in 2016, allegedly, <laughs> as I stumbled upon it, um, they like, they had to include text messaging as a factor uh-huh. because that wasn't really that big of a factor back then. Right. You know, right. um, people were still texting, but not like emojis were not a thing. Let's put it that yeah. way. You were uh, still on T9 back then. <laughs> yeah. So I think where it failed is it, it just didn't quite, it didn't feel epic. In the context of the book, it really felt like end of the world, and it felt like overwhelming, like, what would I do? Uh-huh. And that never triggered me, which I think is one of the things that makes Walking Dead so successful, is it really is good at itching the what would I do if. Right, right. This one, I think, had the ability to do that. It just didn't. didn't follow through well enough. So, where did it succeed? I think it succeeded in tone. Like I said, there are certain scenes, if you took it out of context and just showed somebody that scene, they'd be like, well, what is this? Because it feels powerful. Right. But somehow when you leaped it all together, it still didn't, right. it still didn't flow. But there were certain moments, there were certain beats, so I was like, oh, that's an interesting twist that, I, that didn't necessarily happen in the book. Mm-hmm. And it's weird, I gave it a different level of pass because, well, they can change it however they want because the guy who wrote the book is involved with writing the screenplay. Right, 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 right. right. So that, that like, gives you a different kind of license. Right, nobody's disregarding Stephen King, which you shouldn't when you're using his <laughs> maybe, material. Maybe that guy could write a story that'd be good every once in a while. So let's talk about the Georgia Recognition Factor brought to you by Atlanta Movie Tours. Uh, how did it do? Well, it doesn't take place in Atlanta, shockingly. It took place up in Boston, I think, technically. Um, and they, I know that they turned the World Congress Center into the airport. And it served as a pretty good airport. I know that just because one of the guys that I work with at Atlanta Movie Tours, Clyde, was an extra on the film. I was looking for him. I didn't see him. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of chaos in those scenes. I even asked Clyde back in the day. I'm like, oh, you worked on cell? Like, from the inside, how did it look? Did it look like it was a real production? Did it look real? He's like, yeah. So, I, anyways, uh, <laughs> you can definitely recognize Atlanta a few times. You definitely recognize Edgewood Boulevard shortly after they put the, uh, the tracks in for the streetcar. Mm-hmm. And I think they shot it so long. I don't even think the streetcars were running yet. So... This movie has been done on the shelf for a while. I have no idea why, but uh, Atlanta, I'd, I'd give it a, I'd give it a. Th- if you're looking for it, I'd give it a three for recognition factor. Okay. All right. Now, it's a million dollar question. Eight Atlas. How do you score this movie? I'm gonna overall. It's such a bummer because I was so excited for this. I'm giving it a two. I'm giving it an at, just an at. And reading a little bit about what other people have been saying about it, people are saying much worse things about it than I did. I, so I'm afraid I'm seeing it with a little bit of rose-colored glasses just because I liked the book so much way back when. Well, yeah, I was going to ask the book colored your opinion. I, I'm sure it did, but but I seriously felt like the performances were strong. It, it, was just, it just felt patched together. It felt like if somebody took a, a lot of these little beats and just tried to duck them, duct tape them together and try to turn it into a cohesive, powerful story, it just didn't quite land any of the punches it was trying to land. So there's a reason it was snuck on to Amazon Prime or all that. Yeah, I think so. So, sell. Ah, ah. See, the bummer is it's not campy, at least not on purpose. But it didn't feel campy to me when I was watching by myself. So it's, I don't even know it's going to like catch on. It's like a fun to watch with your buddies kind of campy. You know? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, all right. Well, that's a bummer because I've been looking forward to it a long time. So that's that's sell. He's got two of my... my my guys, and I love, I love John Cusack and, you know, Samuel. Who doesn't love Samuel L. Jackson? Yeah, who are you? Because if you don't like him, 
Especially another Atlanta native. Atlanta's own Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, I know that because he yells at me during Falcons games. <laughs> Rise up. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's it. That's everything for this exciting, unorthodox episode of Atlas. Is there anything else, Omar, you would like to share with our listening audience? Um, If somebody come here and help me get these people out of my basement, I would love that. No, but... I, I thank you for allowing me to sit in the guest spot. Hey. So that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Again, my name is Jakai Mickelson, creative director of Atlanta Movie Tours. I'm Omar Beach, a uh, guy who sits in his room a lot and does some art. <laughs> <laughs> and also a uh, star of the major motion picture called uh, Spilled Milk. So I was in that. Hey. Yeah, so feel free to check that out. Thanks for listening, everybody, and mercifully, Emma will be back next week. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>